This is Ephesians uh, 2, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks, Kurt, for reading that for us. Good morning. I'm Daisy Richardson. I'm part of the team here at Hillcrest. I get to connect with our community, and it's a wonderful job to have. And I'm excited about Ephesians because Ephesians is one of my favorite books. I was remembering how back in junior high and high school, I think I had to glue the whole book of Ephesians back into my Bible because it had been worn and had come out. So um, Ephesians is right up the top there along with Romans. And it's exciting that we went through the book of Romans in the summer and now we're jumping into the book of Ephesians. What a great combination. So for the last two weeks, Pastor Steve has been getting us kicked off and started And we talked in the first week, he talked with us about our identity, that we're often asking the wrong question. We're asking, who am I? Instead of asking instead, whose am I? And that our foundational identity was meant to be formed in relationship with God. Last week, he specifically talked about chapter 1, starting at verse 15. And if you missed this one, go back, listen to it or watch it online. It was excellent. It'll really set the foundation for where we're going for the next few weeks. And Steve described how the recipients of the letter, so the people in Ephesus, were desperate for personal hope, for value, and for power. And so Paul writes to them. He is writing about who God is, who he has made me to be, and what do I do in response. And so there's this identity flow. First, you find out who God is, and who he is defines what he does, and what he does defines who we are, and who we are defines what we do. But it all starts with knowing who God is. So that's the setup for chapter 2, and that's what we're going to look at today, what Kurt just read for us, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Have any of you seen the new City of Moose Jaw publicity campaign? It goes something like this. Get a life. Move to Canada's most notorious city and get a life. Moving your family to a new community would be a bold move. You can hear the announcer's voice. Moving your family to Moose Jaw would be notoriously bold, of course. In Moose Jaw, you'll get more time, more value for your money, and more opportunity to get the most out of life. That's the new City of Moose Jaw campaign. 
Well, today's big idea sounds a lot like this campaign. God has a new life for us. He wants you and me to get a life and to be new humans with a new purpose. So here's the two big ideas that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about how God's power has changed our old position of death to our new position of life, and also how God's power changes our old practice of sin to our new practice, which is holiness and leads to good works. So this passage in Ephesians 2 is Paul's best summary of his doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, and that's what we will look at. So we do start with the bad news. We start with our old position. And before I jump into the first three verses, you know, verses one through seven in this passage are actually one long sentence. I tried reading it in one breath, and it was impossible. Um, We're going to divide it up a little bit, just like it's divided up for us. But before we jump into chapter two, verse one, let's just back up to the very end of Ephesians one. And I'm going to read that to you, and then we'll go into the first three verses to see where Paul's going. So Ephesians 1.19, that power is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his, Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then he keeps going here in verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There's a lot of terms and phrases in here that Paul throws out in his dire description of what it looks like to be dead. So what does he mean? We were dead. You were dead. Well, he's talking about spiritual death, separation, unable to understand and appreciate spiritual things, and that we can do nothing within ourselves to please God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced immediate spiritual death. Eventually, they experienced physical death, but he's not just talking about physical death here. He's talking about that spiritual death and saying that without Christ, we aren't just sick. We're dead. We don't just need resuscitation. We need resurrection. And even though all lost sinners are dead, well, not even though, all lost sinners are dead. And the difference between one sinner and another is just the state of decay. One corpse isn't more dead than another. It's like saying she's a little bit pregnant. Either you are or you aren't, right? It's just a difference in the state of decay. So you're dead, spiritually dead, and dead in your transgressions and sins. Transgressions isn't a word that we use very much, although we do use trespass. Like if you're trespassing, you're breaking the law and you're going onto somebody's property. That's kind of what it's talking about. It's an act of going against a rule or a law. It's an offense. And then sin is the act of choosing our own way and leaving God out of the picture. So here, if you think of transgressions as like stepping over the line or over the boundary, that's being a rebel. And sin is like missing the mark or falling short, that's being a failure. 
So in our dead state, in our spiritually dead state, separated from God, we're both rebels and failures. It's like a terrible country music song or something, or maybe rock and roll. So here we are in sin and transgression. It says that you used to walk in or live in following the ways of this world, being influenced by the present age. So whether we're conscious of it or not, the world around us influences our values and attitudes, um, especially before we've come to Christ, when we're dead to spiritual things. It's a world that leaves God out of the picture and sometimes is openly hostile to him, either ignoring or defying him. And that's the world that tries to stamp an identity on us. That's what he's referring to. So he says, you're following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who's that, the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Well, he's referring to the enemy, to the devil. The ruler of the kingdom the, um, or of the air it, the Bible tells us that he has authority on the earth, and he aims to make people children of disobedience. He's a liar, and it starts with a lie. So it's like playing a corrupt game. Here he is. He's an evil games master who sets up a, the game board, the world, with broken pieces, fake rules, hidden traps. Oh, it's the traps. And then he just sits back and watch people play. I don't actually think that the devil has to be hands-on involved with most of us. We're pretty good at doing bad, aren't we? And in fact, he can't be hands-on because he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once like God is. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful like God is. But he knows the kind of traps that entice us. And lies and deception are always part of that. Sometimes we overemphasize his roles, or we think of like in cartoons when we were little, somebody's trying to decide what to do, and the little cartoon devil appears on one shoulder and the little cartoon angel on the other shoulder, and if they decide to do the bad thing, then, well, the devil made me do it. Well, actually, we're just pretty good at making bad decisions sometimes on our own, aren't we? And in the New Testament, the devil's not really presented as this problem that we're going to need a solution for, although in, later in Ephesians, he is going to talk more about that, but in the New Testament, they're talking about our own sin and the evil age that we're part of. So we've chosen to follow our own desires, and then our society, our age, just reinforces the bad choice and says, that's a good one, even though it's not. So here we are in the middle of this mess, and it says, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Disobedient seems like a polite word to me. Compared to some of those other words, it seems quite polite. But I think of it, and I remember this all too well, as a toddler kicking and screaming and wailing, flailing against their parent. That kind of disobedient. That's what we are like before Christ, um, fighting against God's purposes. And disobedience here often is interchangeable with unbelief. What a dreary picture. And then, in verse 3, he hits us with all of us also lived among them at one time. Nobody's exempt from this, Paul's saying. He's including himself in it. All of us have been spiritually dead and are trying to gratify the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Well, what's that all about? Cravings of our flesh. Isn't there some restaurant called Cravings in Regina? I think there was at one point. 
Cravings of the flesh. He's not talking about our physical, saying our physical bodies are bad. That's not what he's talking about. But it's, he's referring to our fallen nature that we're born with that wants to control us and cause us to be disobedient to God. It's essentially the part that wants to leave God out of the picture. No, I've got this. I can, I can handle this. This is on my own. Well, what about the cravings and desires? Well, you know, as humans, we actually have legitimate needs for things like food and shelter and safety and love and connection. All those, those are legitimate needs. But Paul's saying, I'm not talking about legitimate human needs. I'm talking about when those needs are distorted and subverted and heightened and that they produce this irrational self-centeredness. You think of all those good things, food, shelter, safety, love, and then you think of the corrupt version of them. That's what he's talking about, where it becomes an irrational uh, pursuit of those things to extremes. It causes a distortion in our minds and often leads to deception. Sinful appetites lead to sinful actions. We get all geared up on focusing on ourselves and the satisfaction of our self-centered cravings. And maybe it's really obvious to those around us that this is what's happening, but it can also be very covert. It can be an internal struggle that maybe is not showing itself to the world around us. By nature, he says, like the rest of us, so there's all of us, and then like the rest of us, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That sounds terrible. We don't want to talk about that. Let's skip that part, and we're going to go to the next verse. No, we can't. Actually, this is a really important piece, is to understand why we need to talk about wrath. What do you mean by nature we were deserving of wrath? Well, the language here is talking about that a sentence has already been passed. They've, we've already been sentenced to death. By nature, we were deserving of wrath. We need outside help. In John 3, verse 18, Jesus says, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. All people are headed for an encounter with God's wrath, both present and future. In fact, if God doesn't have wrath, salvation isn't needed. Think about that for a moment. What are we saved from? We're saved from death, spiritual death. We're saved from God's wrath. But wrath points to God's constant displeasure and reaction against sin. We can't understand God's wrath against sin if we don't understand his holiness because he is completely holy. The wrath of God is an expression of his love and deep, deep attachment to his people whom he loves. Uh, there was an ancient philosopher who said, Those who, the, he who does not get angry does not care. Think about that. What angers us the most? Things that we care a lot about. Sometimes we face really hard questions like, how can a loving God let bad things happen in this world? Look at all the stuff that's going on around us. Listen, God looks at the injustice in the world, and he has wrath stored up for it. He will deal with sin and injustice. He will. It won't go unpunished. But he's holding back his wrath in this age in order that many would be reconciled to him. And we know that from 2 Peter 3.9. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. We just say, well, just do something now. Get rid of this now. He's not slow as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
So though a new age exists in Christ, the old age is still with us and at work, and there's still an old order that wants to define who we are. You think, man, what a depressing picture. I came to church for this? It's a little bleak. Now, I want to make a note. Paul's not saying that people can only do evil. Even Jesus admitted that or acknowledged that sinners can be nice to each other. In Luke 6, he says, even sinners can do do good to someone who does good to them. So it's a little bit of a selfish goodness, but it's like, okay, you're nice to me. I'll be nice to you. Even a sinner can do that. Or in Matthew 7, he tells the story of even evil people can give good gifts to their children. If their kid asks for bread, you don't give them a rock. If you ask for fish, you don't give them a snake. He's saying even sinful people can do that. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not being incapable of any good, but hear this. It means being incapable of doing anything to merit salvation or to meet the high standards of God's holiness. That's where we fall short. So he's describing the depravity of humanity in these first three verses in the sense of corruption, not worthlessness. If someone takes a $1,000 bill, actually I looked it up, we don't have $1,000 bills anymore. Do you know that our highest denomination of bill is now 100 which just probably shows we don't use cash. If you take a $100 bill and somebody scribbles on it, crumples it up, does it lose its value at the bank? No. It's been, it has vandalism, but it still has value. Likewise, sin scrawls graffiti all over God's creation, corrupting it, but never able to remove its value in God's sight. The value is there. So in this realm of death... We are dead in sin and transgressions before Christ. Death controls life. Death is not relational, right? Death is the end of life. So it's not relational, and it's powerless. So in spiritual death, there's no relationship with God, and there's distorted relationships with each other. So it's this crazy cycle where sin both causes death, but it's also the evidence of spiritual death around us. So Paul's telling people that you can live in one of two spheres of influence. You can live in sin, which is in death, or in Christ, which is in life. I love the way one commentator put it, and it just sums it up so well, that the picture in the text that the text paints is bleak. Because because of sins, humans are the living dead. They live in keeping with a world that ignores God and in keeping with a tyrant who works to cause disobedience. In their enslavement, they follow desires and distorted reasonings that leave God out of the picture, and therefore they're under God's wrath. But the main point of Ephesians, and especially chapter 2, 1 through 10, is that God will not stay out of the picture. He won't. He's an active God who is for us, and he won't stay out of the picture. Romans 8.31 says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God won't stay out of the picture. So, As we look at the next section of verses, verses 4 through 7, let's see how God shows up to this dire situation. And the the focus definitely shifts from our condition without Christ to what God has done. 
So in verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Wow. There's a, that's a lot of contrasts, isn't it? So in the first section, we heard all the death and doom and destruction. And now in this one, it's like it's bubbling over with God's good intentions toward us, his love for us. One of his intrinsic attributes is love. And here God expresses his love to sinners as grace and mercy. In fact, it says he's rich in mercy. Mercy means he doesn't give us what we do deserve. He holds that back. And grace is that he gives us what we don't deserve. He lavishes that on us. And it's all made possible by Christ's death. So mercy and love are revelations of God's being, who he is. Remember, when we know who he is, we understand what he does, and that affects who we are. God acts in mercy because he is that kind of God, not in response to something that merits love in the individual. So he doesn't, we understand mercy more like this. We're like, oh, our kid does something wrong. And then you look at them and they give you a cute face and you remember that you like them or maybe love them even in that moment. And you're just like, okay, fine. And you just hold back. And you kind of feel bad for them and they're cute. And so you show mercy. That's not what it's talking about at all. God's mercy doesn't have to do with him looking down at us and feeling sorry for us. It's part of who he is. It's because of his character that he expresses mercy toward us, not because of our cuteness or that he likes some better than others. No. In verse 5, it says, he made us alive with Christ. That's a complete contrast to the first section. We were dead in all this sin and and muck and mire. He makes us alive with Christ. That's spiritually alive. And unites us with him to share in his resurrection, life, and power. In chapter 1, it was talking about that whole process of what Christ did on the cross. And now he's saying God is joining us together with him to experience that. And then here's the word grace. And this comes in again and again in this last two sections. It's undeserved favor and mercy. It's free, and it's unmerited favor of God. Most of our experiences tell us that we have to earn things like love and acceptance and respect. That's how we live. We earn those things. That's not what this is. Grace gives us significance and standing in our relationship with God, and it's completely apart from anything that any work on our part, it means God does it all for Jesus' sake. And then, you know, it was interesting last week when Steve was talking about us being his inheritance. Did you catch that? We don't think about that, about us, those that he rescued, being his inheritance for eternity. But there's a little bit of a, a nod to that here in verse 7 as well. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's language of eternity. 
glorifying him. And over and over again, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. So what was said about Jesus in chapter 1 is now being applied to Christians. God raised and exalted Christ, and he's raised and exalted us from spiritual death to be with him. So when Christ was raised physically, we were raised spiritually, raised and seated with him in heavenly realms. And this brings all sorts of amazing gifts, privilege in him on honor and security, responsibility. Listen to the contrast between the two positions of death and life. So we're talking about living in sin versus living in good works prepared by God. The world versus a heavenly realm death versus life, sinful nature or the flesh versus union with Christ, wrath versus mercy and salvation, being under the ruler or being seated with Christ. That one really gets me. There's a big difference there. By nature or by grace, not from works, but through faith. When we see stories of how people come to Jesus, sometimes we see stories, dramatic transformations like Paul's in Acts chapter 9. It's very dramatic, like black and white turns around, life totally changed in an instant. But sometimes we see other stories that are more of a slow, gradual journey, and we hear about that one of his, Paul's co-workers, Timothy, that's kind of his story. But in both cases, Whether your experience in coming to Christ was dramatic and sudden or slow and steady over a long time, the movement is from death to life. Geography determines our identity. Where are you living? Are you living in death or in life? A couple weeks ago, we started back our our English conversation group on Wednesdays, Let's Talk, and it's great. We get to hang out with newcomers to Canada and practice English together, and we were talking about Canadian distinctives, specifically words we use in Canada for things that Americans use different words for, because lots of our guests have traveled in both countries, and so we identify by our geography. Well, a Canadian would say toque, right? I didn't even know what the American word for toque would be. It's beanie. Who knew? It's a Canadian distinctive. And even within the country, right, we have distinctives. Steve referred to some of this, you know, which teams you you root for. It probably has to do with where you're from or where you were from before, maybe, um, because we identify with geography. Well, this is the same here. In Christ, our position, our spiritual geography has changed. We've been transferred from death to life. And in case you didn't hear the grace part, because there was grace already oozing in there, Paul goes on in the next few verses here, we're going to jump into 8, 9, and 10, to say it again and again. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, the whole process of salvation, And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that none of you can boast. Oh, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do by grace. It's a gift by grace through faith. What does he mean, through faith? Well, It's the means to which grace is received. It's relying on something or someone that we believe to be reliable. Or Steve's definition last week was, faith is trusting in what he's done for you. The faith that Paul describes, it's both relational and it's covenant language. So it's relational, it's reliance on a reliable God. 
So Paul's understanding of faith includes things like attachment to him, union with Christ, like-mindedness with Christ, and it's covenant language, which is language of promise. It's commitment and trust that binds two parties together. So salvation doesn't come just from believing ideas or from an emotional decision. It comes from being bound to Christ, from union with Christ. So if I say I have faith in God, it actually doesn't say very much about me in the terminology that Paul's using. It actually is saying God is a trustworthy God. He's not saying let's muster up some faith. He's saying God is worthy of us putting our faith in him. Sometimes with faith we think, okay, I get the faith part, but change is, that's kind of optional. It's not necessary, is it? Whoa, that's not the way Paul sees it. He says faith is life-changing. It produces holiness, which leads to good deeds. We, oh, the language in all the songs this morning, thank you, worship team, for leading us. Knowing where we were going, I just thought every song was hitting all the language that, that Ephesians 2 brings out. And that was part of it, was saying that uh, holiness, there was some line in one of those ones about um, holiness, and I thought, that's so good produces holiness is Christ in me. It's his holiness that God sees. Um, And this whole process of salvation is a gift, not a reward. Do you hear the difference? We reward accomplishments and achievements. That's not what this is. This is a gift. I think the whole Santa Claus narrative, I just have to stick this in here, trains kids to think about gifts as rewards. You act good and then you get the present that you're hoping for. That's not what Paul's talking about, but you can see it in our culture. Gifts and rewards are very different. Salvation is a gift. And then he adds in there, it's not about works so that no one can boast. In fact, Paul writes in another place in in 1 Corinthians about the only thing we should ever boast about is what God has done. So it's not about any accomplishment that we think we can do. But the work of salvation is completed on the cross by Jesus. That's the work. And it's past tense. It's already happened. As I was reading about this, there was a phrase that jumped out to me, and I just thought, what? I read it so many times because I think it is true. I would never thought of it like this, though. The cross does not gain back God's favor. Rather, God's favor was the basis for Jesus' death. What? The cross does not gain back God's favor. That's like I'm working to get in his good books. Rather, God's favor was the basis for Jesus' death because of his great love for us. He provided Christ as a sacrifice. When we get to verse 10, and if there's any section of this that you've possibly ever memorized as a child, maybe, it would be verse 10, wouldn't it? In fact, in the last two weeks, going through all this, I have had the song from the elementary group, which is verse 10, going through my head constantly, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's language of creation. We are the result of his activity. We're recipients. And the New Testament view of God's act in Christ is parallel to creation itself. He's creating spiritual life in the midst of spiritual death. Created in Christ Jesus to do good work. So he just finished saying, nothing. it's not because of anything you've done, but this is different. This good works is something different. It's, we're not 
salvation doesn't come from good works, out of good works, but we are saved for good works. They're an evidence of our salvation in Christ. They're not a means to get there. They're good versus all the evil and dark stuff we read about in the first three verses, and they're prepared in advance. They're not an afterthought. God's plan provides this. So the characteristics of this new life, grace, love, mercy, kindness, glorifying God, holiness, becoming like Christ, good works out of response to what Christ has done for us. That's a completely different picture than those first three verses painted of spiritual death. So grace permeates throughout our entire Christian life. Grace is not just how we get our foot in the door. It's like, oh, there's a little bit of grace. Okay, I'm in. Now I'm going to work really, really hard to prove that I deserve to be here for the rest of my life. No, we live in grace. We're meant to mirror that same grace to those around us, the grace that he showed us. One of, some of us are doers. We want to say, where's the list? Show me the list, and then we'll start getting it done. We'll check off the tasks. But the problem is, if we jump into this part, created in good works, okay, do good works. There's the point. If we jump into working for God and we forget about all that we just read right before that, we're working for him before we allow him to work in us, we risk believing that our work for him is what he really desires from us. And we miss that his ultimate desire is to transform us into the image of Christ. And Paul goes on to say, the same resurrection power. He's been giving this picture of Christ raised from the dead and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The same power that resurrected Christ and is the power that saved you. And the same power that saved you is the power that will continue to help you to live daily in Christ and to glorify him. The same power. The same power. So... There's not a big to-do list with this passage. We'll get to that part. But as we wrap up here, there's a couple of things I want to mention. Because you might be having, maybe you, there's more than one issue you have with this passage. There's definitely a lot of places you could hunker down and talk about a lot more than I have this morning. But there's a couple of things that might be going through your mind. One, maybe most of us could relate to this. We think, well, are we really as bad as Paul describes? We kind of like to scale sin, like good, better, best. Well, we're in there. Like we're sort of mature and, you know, Western culture. Well, really? Or maybe we're good at looking at the world around us, but we're not good at looking at our own selfish, sinful hearts. But we see evil in our society. Look at our suicide rates, our problems with alcohol and drugs and injustice and death and poverty, war, terrorism. All these are signs of the living dead, living in death. You think, well, I don't know. Or some people, I used to, when I was a children's pastor, I remember people saying, well, they kind of chuckled at the thought of a child coming to Christ and confessing their sin. They're like, they're a kid. What could they possibly have done that they have to confess? Well, Paul talks about that. He's by nature, by nature. It's in our nature. The seed is there. Maybe the evidence of it hasn't had time to make such a big mess. If, if you have a big, hairy dog, and that dog goes and romps around in your yard in, after a rainstorm in the mud and comes to the door to come back in covered in mud, if you stop that dog at the door, 
get the towel, clean it all up and everything, then it comes in, that's one thing. But what if you go to stop the dog at the door and phew, goes right off to the side, runs around the whole house, shakes mud everywhere, climbs on everything. Which dog was dirtier when it came to the door? It's the same. One just had more time to run around and make a mess. And it looks more dramatic. The other one was hoping to and never got there, was stopped before that could happen. Sometimes that's the evidence in our own life. We think, well, we're not really that bad. Really? If there's one thing that I've discovered going through many set-free retreats here at Hillcrest, and we usually have been doing them in the winter months now, is that the more I recognize my own brokenness, my own sinfulness, the more I can give glory to God for what he has done to provide a way out for that. Sometimes we don't think we're that bad because we've never actually stopped to take a look inside and examine our own hearts. Maybe you say, I don't have any trouble believing that. If you knew my story, you would understand. I believe all that. I've seen way more than what you've described. But what I struggle with is believing that God's gift can really be as good as what Paul describes. Really? Free? Nothing's really free. Value and hope. Steve talked about that in last week, that the people that Paul was writing to were, were eager, yearning for value and hope. Without God, humanity has very little of either. With God, we have immense hope and lasting value, and it has to do with getting to know that identity, getting to know him. In him, we've experienced that resurrection, that movement from death to life, or you can experience it if you haven't. New life, the very creation of God, being exalted with Christ and having privilege and honor and security in him, being the recipients of his abundant kindness throughout eternity. If you're struggling with that piece, thinking it sounds too good for me, my prayer for you today would be that you would hear Jesus' words, come to me, come to me, and that it would be the beginning of you getting to know who God is because that's where it's going to click, where you're going to see your identity. These first three chapters, actually, of Ephesians don't tell us to do a lot. The, The second three are a little different. But it's important because our strongest activity comes from our identity, who we see ourselves to be, and that's why it's important that it starts with identity. Action's going to come later. So maybe our first response this morning, and the worship team's going to come in a moment here, should just be speechlessness, wonder, worship. Those things can be followed by obedience and service. Worship that embraces all of life. That's a great response to this passage to say, thank you. It's amazing. There's huge implications for how we live our lives if we believe that his gift to us is what it is, that it really gives us that value. Maybe this morning you need to check your pulse. In every good whodunit movie, somebody runs into the room and they see the crime scene and they run over and take the person's pulse. What are they checking for? Are they alive? Do you need to take your pulse this morning? Am I alive? Am I spiritually alive? Have I experienced that resurrection to life in Christ? Or am I still living in verses 1, 2, and 3? Is that what I'm experiencing right now? Where are you going to live? You say, yes, I'm alive in Christ. Awesome. Put on your new humanity and practice your position in Christ. He's worked for you. Now you can let him work in you. You can let him work through you. You can live and love like Jesus. 
as followers of Jesus, we can have a slogan, we're not going to get a life. Our slogan is, I got a life. And it was free. You didn't have to relocate your family for this one. Letting God move you from death to life, that's a bold move. Some would even call it eternally bold. In Christ, we get more grace, more mercy, more opportunity to get the most out of life. You get it all wrapped up in eternal life. The worship team is going to come and lead us. And I encourage you, in this last song that they're going to do, if you're already experiencing life in Christ, take this opportunity. Thank him. Praise him for what he's already done. But maybe you're saying, I, I'm not there. I didn't get transferred over yet. But I want to. Well, I'm going to pray with you too. Because today can be the day of salvation for you, where you take the first step, step to say, yes, I want to be moved from death to life. Yes, I want all that stuff. I don't understand half of it, but I want it, Jesus. I want to know who you are, and I want to know your life in me. Would you stand with me? I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and we pray this one around here a lot, because it's not just a first-time commitment to Christ's prayer. It's also just a, affirming that, yes, Father, we're following you and thanking him for what he's done in Jesus but it could be the first time that you would pray this today to say, I'm going to take that step and say yes to all this amazing stuff that is, sounds too good to be true. Let's pray together. There's no magic words here, but you could pray it with me. He knows your heart. Dear Father, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. Thank you for moving me from death to life. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're so thankful for your work in us. I pray that our faith would rise today in recognizing who you are and what you've done and how that impacts who we are and what you call us to. We love you, Jesus, and we want to express our love for you this morning. May you be glorified. Amen.